Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guests today are Stephanie DeKramer and Russell Botting. Stephanie and Russell are employees at Auticon, which is an IT consulting business that employs over 200 adults on the autism spectrum as IT consultants. Stephanie is one of them, and Russell is her job coach. They work together at Auticon's office in London, England. With branches across the UK, US, Canada, Germany, France, Switzerland, and Australia, Auticon is an international social enterprise whose mission is to improve the employment aspects of autistic people. They aim to provide high-quality careers for skilled autistic adults, shift perspectives in the workplace by placing consultants into client teams, and act as a catalyst for clients to bring more neurodiversity to their wider workforce. In this conversation, Stephanie and Russell discuss their experiences working at Auticon and offer ideas about how other companies could increase neurodiversity in the workplace. They also talk about what services are available to families in the UK from diagnosis to adulthood. Stephanie explains what it was like for her to find out about her autism later in life and what she wishes neurotypicals would consider when communicating with her. She also shares her special interests and strengths related to autism. In this episode, discover what's possible when diversity strengthens the workplace. For more information about our guests and the work they do, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, Please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. We would love to hear your feedback about the show. Please fill out the short survey in our show notes to let us know your thoughts. And now, I present you Stephanie DeKramer and Russell Botting. Hello, Stephanie and Russell. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Hi. Could you please briefly introduce yourselves? Stephanie, would you like to start us off? Yes. So I've been working at Autocon for two years now. I'm currently on a project with KPMG, which is very well known. We get to work on all sorts of different client projects here. My main interests outside of Autocon are professional wrestling, like WWE professional wrestling, and I also like rock music and video games. Nice. Thank you. And Russ, how about you? Thanks, Rachel. I'm Russell. I'm the lead job coach at Autocon, and I'm actually Stephanie's job coach. So I've been at Autocon for two years now, and my background's come from a clinical psychology background. So before Autocon, I worked in the NHS, uh, different learning disability and autism services providing psychological input and support uh, and also have experience of uh, conducting and delivering autism assessments, autism diagnostic assessments as well. Oh, interesting. What were those assessments that you were doing? 
it's for the uh, autism diagnostic assessment. So that will be, I primarily use something, something called the ADOS, so the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. Mm-hmm. There are different types of assessment, such as the DISCO. Um, I haven't done experience of using that, but it's mainly the, yeah, as I say, the, the ADOS. So yeah, that's a, a diagnostic process where individuals will usually, you'd have an assessment with an individual and then obviously a different assessment or kind of interview with kind of informants. So parents or caregivers to so get kind of a bit of the developmental background and history of the individual through childhood, their kind of, uh, social communication development. And then obviously the assessment itself would look at how that, that person's experience of autism. And it's essentially an interesting assessment where it's used to kind of elicit autistic type behaviours to help people interact with the environment, with others, it looks at kind of emotional reciprocity, communication and interaction, and also lots of different elements of emotion as well. Got it. So let's start with how autism is viewed in the UK. And first, could you just let our listeners know what city you guys are in? We're in London. There's another office in Edinburgh. Okay, got it. So what's the understanding of autism where you are? Autism in the UK, it's a mixed bag. So in my age group, 1994, I know people that my age that needed to get diagnosed that really had to push for a diagnosis. I believe because they were girls and it wasn't as obvious as the boys who tended to be a bit more disruptive. The girls could be very quiet and they'd see it more as, oh, she just really loves reading or, oh, look, she's collecting lots and lots of toys. It's so motherly. And they'd characterize it as a motherly, quiet nature rather than an autistic sort of nature. So a lot of people I know tended to get diagnosed a bit later in life, such as myself. And some of the provision after you turn 18 drops off. We have local councils and local authorities that are supposed to be in charge of different areas. And it tends to be very organized when you're in school. And once you become an adult, people find that a lot of the services bottom out from underneath you. And you're suddenly in the adult world. But we all know that autism is a lifelong condition. It doesn't just stop when you're an adult. Mm Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you were diagnosed? It was in 2016, so I would have been 22, and I'm 26 now. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to touch on that again later in the conversation. Sure. So what kinds of services are available for families from the point of diagnosis? Russ, do you want to speak to this since you have some experience at that phase? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I th- just touching back on Stephanie's point is absolutely true, is, is often a key determinant in individuals or families receiving a diagnosis is often perseverance from the individual or the family. That's often the system, whilst it is in the NHS, it's, it's, it's a great system. It's it's not all often set up for the amount of kind of diagnosis we, we now see. And there's, there's lots and in, quite a, a large increase in diagnosis and waiting times often kind of two to three years, if not more, for a diagnostic assessment in the NHS. So families, individuals are waiting an extremely long time for support. And during that time, you know, that individual may need additional support than they're not getting because they don't have that diagnosis. That's probably one area where I think we're still kind of not quite there yet, even though we do, I think, you know, compared to kind of maybe five, 10 years ago, we certainly as a, as a mentality shift potentially and, and a kind of there is more education, I think, on, on autism and there's more awareness than maybe there, there was. But as I think we said, there's a bit more to go because we, we still see that, you know, individuals with autism are marginalised in society, whether that's, you know, through stigmatisation, whether it's 
equal access to the job market, which is why Autocon kind of exists, health inequalities, and kind of, uh, the involvement in the criminal justice system. So it's mainly as, as a victim or, or witness rather than a, a necessary kind of a perpetrator. But all these different kind of elements are really, really kind of come together to show that we're not quite there yet. But there are, as you say, there are services there to support people. And I think the first port of call really is is primary care. So GP services should be, and uh, I think are getting better at setting up to kind of understand what autism looks like that like like Stephanie said that everyone is different and everyone's experience of autism is different and to knowing the right questions to ask hopefully that we kind of, there is a feeling that primary care is more able more flex and adaptive to, to kind of understanding when a, a referral for a diagnostic assessment is necessary but there are other services such as the National Autistic Society. If you're from the US primary care is like your family doctor GPs and family doctors so you that's the doctor you start with and who then signposts you to the other more specialist areas yeah absolutely so someone like the GP or, or kind of nurses would usually be considered primary care but we also you know if we think about families of, of young children so SEN SENCO so special educational need coordinators in schools they'd also be a, a really key point of contact and if an individual or family isn't already known in school to have a SENCO coordinator then I, then I think it's often about making sure that the school or the primary care services are aware of the support that, that can be offered to individuals and families but the NAS are a really good source of both you know research and diagnostic assessments they do also do workplace assessments so a really good source of information and guidance for anyone that's thinking or going through a diagnosis or has questions about potentially autism. And they're, they're also really good at kind of signposting to local charities, local services um, in, in the person's area. Um, there's also another charity called Ambitious About Autism that, that do a similar thing as uh, so around education, information, advice, uh, residential services, uh, and employment support. So um, they're obviously, they would be a good source of support. But there are actually lots of forums and kind of social media accounts where you can, lots of people can understand get information and seek support from kind of peer groups what they should do but I guess a really good first start would be kind of something like the NHS website in the UK where they can go to see what avenues are the best best for them really. Mm-hmm. And all of this is provided by the government or do families have to pay out of pocket? We have a national insurance system so we do end up paying for it. It's very much it is socialized medicine the NHS can be amazing in some ways. If you go to the doctor's office and say you have chest pains, they will see you in a minute, less than a minute. But for other things, if you want, for instance, a hip operation, you need to get a new hip or something like that. People have been known to wait two years and they're incapacitated mm. for that long, so they're unable to work. So the US system, it's better if you want to work and get back into work quicker, whereas the UK system is amazing in some areas but I believe David Cameron who was one of our last prime ministers a couple prime ministers back he wanted to pledge four billion extra pounds into mental health in the NHS because that's been chronically underfunded the wait times have been horrific for mental health care so it's not all doom and gloom because that four billion is trickling through now and hopefully that will help for the future Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just touching on Stephanie's point, as I said earlier, the, the waiting times for a diagnosis, for example, are, are quite long. So whilst the individual wouldn't pay for the assessment, 
a lots of times people would seek private diagnosis assessments, which they would they would invariably pay pay for. So I mean, part of the need for getting time time frames or waiting lists kind of shorter is that people wouldn't necessarily have to be paying for private diagnosis. But yeah, expediency is, is really kind of the, the point really that that's if people are have a, a, a real need for a diagnosis and and, and are going to be going to find that useful you know having to wait two three years is often you know a lifetime so yeah lots of things that can be changed i think you could be out of work for that long yeah mm-hmm. there was only one point relating to kind of different options that are available i think we didn't mention access to work we do it's government funding support okay oh, yeah for any employee um they can access support for from access to work so if anyone has a consider themselves to have a, a physical mental health disability they can talk to the employee about access to work and you can have workplace assessments which look at the environment and um, so we we do our own workplace assessments at Autocon but if you talk to your employer about access to work it's the employer that would go through the access to work process but that would be for you for for you mm. and you can get support in terms of reasonable adjustments you can actually get general um, mental health support as well and yeah that can be a really useful source of support for individuals that feel that they do need support at work. Yeah, so it sounds like there's been a lot of progress, but there's still ways to go in some areas. What are some misconceptions about autism that you still run into? That it's incredibly dramatic and it's super obvious, and that if you smile or make eye contact, you can't be on the spectrum. If you see any of my friends that are on the spectrum, it wouldn't. it's not super obvious. In fact, pretty much most of the consultants we have at Autocon, once you get to know them, they all are just really interesting, cool people. And especially the ones that don't talk as much as, say, me or another more extroverted person on the spectrum. Once you find something that they like to talk about, they will light up, like they will animate even the most quiet person. That's how I've connected. I've really tried to connect with the other people in the office. And the job coaches are really good at bringing out that side of people to connect with them. Mm-hmm. And Stephanie, you said that you were diagnosed when you were 22, right? Mm-hmm. Late. What was that like for you to discover that about yourself at that point in your life? It was intense. I remember crying a lot, but it was like happy tears because suddenly a lot of things made sense. And I remember right before I got di- diagnosed, I, was, I just felt really confused about all these situations. Why does this stuff keep happening? And it was a big emotional experience and it explained so much stuff. Like I had all these hearing tests when I was age three, age four, and they thought because I didn't look around or respond to my name, they thought it was because I was deaf rather than because I just was more interested in what I was playing with and I didn't want to, you know, they'd rattle like, hey, Steph, come here, come here. And if you're on the spectrum, you're like, playing with whatever you're playing with and you don't care and the eye tracking you know if you look at your mum and if your mum's eyes contact if she looks at a toy uh, a kid is supposed to be able to see that the mum has switched their gaze and then follow the gaze and look at the toy that the mum's looking at and lots of subtle things like this so I had lots of operations on my ears I have tinnitus now permanent tinnitus because I had three sets of operations on my ears they kept thinking why aren't her symptoms going away? Her hearing looks fine, but she's not responding. She's not listening. And knowing my diagnosis now at the age of, well, then 22, now 26, 
now I feel frustrated that I had all those unnecessary investigative operations on my ears because it wasn't a hearing problem. It was a listening problem. Mm. How does your autism affect your life now? I would say it affects my communication with people. A lot of times people think I don't want to talk to them when actually I do. I just don't know what to say. I've had this very recently. With friendships, you need to water a plant like you water a friendship. You keep checking in with someone. And someone on well, my experience is I need less watering to maintain a friendship. So people keep asking me, how are you? How are you? And to me, that seems repetitive. And I don't always respond to that. And they think that it's me ignoring them or not wanting to talk. So the main way it still affects me is through interacting with other people. If you'd asked me at age 22, I would have said the sensory experience, like the lights and the sounds. But now that I have my diagnosis, I've got much better at managing all the sensory onslaught. So that's a good thing, at least. Yeah. Do you find that you struggle more when interacting with neurotypical people or does it not matter? Like it's the same even if they are autistic? No, I find if someone is neurodivergent, if they have ADHD or maybe they have dyspraxia, I actually have co-occurring ADHD. So I know quite a few people in the ADHD circles and through university, meeting other people with all sorts of different things. And I do find that you're on a certain wavelength that you kind of get each other. And I just find people that are neurotypical, I'm much more scared of accidentally offending someone or doing something wrong. Even if I've had a completely normal conversation afterwards, Russell tells me this all the time. Afterwards, I'm like, oh, I think I said the wrong thing. I think I did something wrong. But I never really feel that way with someone if someone's neurodivergent, they tend to just take what you say at face value. They don't tend to think about extra layers of meaning and all these hidden signals that people are giving each other that I don't really understand. I wish people that were neurotypical would realize that we're not trying to upset anyone. And most of the time, if we are upset with you, you'd know because we kind of wear it on our sleeves. So there's nothing hidden. It's sort of in plain sight. At least that's my experience. I don't want to speak for everyone. Yeah, that's actually really good advice because it can kind of fall under ableism in a way. This attitude that you're trying to tiptoe around someone who thinks differently because you don't want to offend them. It's already othering them and thinking that they can't handle you just being yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like, I think. I have friends that are trans and they overwhelmingly say, just ask me what my pronouns are. I'm happy to tell you. You don't have to be scared. Like they'll tell you if you ask them. So if you're not sure about something, you can just be direct with someone. And I found that people that are neurodivergent or people that are LGBT plus, they're, they're happy to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. So Stephanie, what are some of your strengths related to autism? I'm very good at acting now because having been diagnosed so late, I'm very used to acting and fitting in, like being forced to fit in. So I love wrestling, which if you know pro wrestling is acting, is predetermined. <laughs> is it? So the theatrical side of that is, yes, yeah, spoiler alert, <laughs> it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> so 
some of my strengths can really show through with that. And on the sport side of it, I think it's a stereotype that people on the spectrum are bad at sports. They're usually very good at something. And I'm very good at learning the technical moves and knowing how to fall properly and following instructions. You know, if you fall on your on your arm and twist your arm, you're going to hurt yourself. But if you fall flat on your back, it's nice and safe. So that's very important in wrestling. And I know people that are very, very good at video games, who are very skilled. It might not be celebrated as much as more traditional sports, but esports like speed running, where you play a video game really, really, really fast and you beat the level quicker than anyone else on the planet has ever beaten the level before. I can't do that myself, but I just think that's really, really cool. You have the like hand and thumb and eye coordination and the patience to do that. Then I got a hats off to you. <laughs> How did you get into wrestling? I used to be a fan in the 90s and during the 2000s, I went to WrestleMania in Florida, Miami. And when I was 18, I thought I'd start, give it a go. There was a school in Leicester, which is not Leicester, it is pronounced Leicester. Um, and I gave that a go. My sister started doing it as well after me, not before me, I might add. Um, there's a little, <laughs> little sibling rivalry there. I had to stop for a few years during university. There was no professional wrestling society no, I didn't want to start a professional wrestling society. I wasn't good enough at that point to train anyone else, certainly. Then after university, I started training again. I did some training in Canada, in Calgary, with Lance Storm, who's quite well-known professional wrestler. And I do shows on the weekends now. Well, not during COVID, but I do shows and we get crowds. It's usually family-friendly. Lots of kids really love it. They like to do the Fortnite dances aggressively in your direction. <laughs> it's a strange world. I can't really describe it. Cool. Did you go to school for computer science? No, I was. we call them Kompskis, computer science. I, I was friends with a lot of Kompskis at university. But no, I studied natural sciences, so biology and chemistry. And all the sort of data, that you, scientific data that you study, puts you in a good position to do a career in data science. I always knew STEM was very important from a young age. I was hearing about how there's not enough girls in STEM. So I thought I may as well do that. I love it. You're just trying to counter all of the gender stereotypes. Thank you. Yeah, people, when they look at me, don't think I do wrestling or they think maybe I'm in marketing or, or some kind of something else. <laughs> all right, let's talk about Oticon. Russ, could you give us an overview of just what the company is and what services you provide. Sure, yeah. So Autocon are an IT consultancy. So we work in the field of data analytics, quality assurance, data science, and cybersecurity. But we exclusively employ adults who are on the autism spectrum. Um, the main reason for this is because a report showed that in 2016 by the NES, I referring to earlier, found that 16% of adults with autism are in any form of meaningful work, despite over 80% saying that they, they wanted to work. And most importantly, they, they have the skills and aptitude and intelligence to work. So that's that's essentially one of the reasons why Autocom was set up. It's actually a German company. So it's founded in 2011 by uh, our founder, Dirk, whose son was um, on the autism spectrum. And like, like I said, had 
a degree and was in computer science, I just couldn't find access to the job market. Uh, despite a number of interviews, which obviously you found quite overwhelming and anxiety-provoking. And so the Autocom was, was set up and the UK office was founded in 2016. And essentially we are first and foremost a social enterprise, which means, so whilst we're, you know, we, our aim is to be profitable, we, we actually have a social goal, which is to in, increase the employment opportunities of adults who are on the autism spectrum in simple terms. So all, all of our IT consultants are, have a full-time contract and they come with lots of different skills and competencies and abilities. We have masters in computer science, we have PhDs in astrophysics. We have lots of different experiences and diversity within the the team. So the main ethos and vision of Autocon is to increase employment uh, for adults on the autism spectrum. But an additional element of that is to increase and promote and encourage neurodiversity and neurodivergence within the entire workplace. So we also advise companies on how they can make their workplace more accessible for individuals with neurodiverse conditions. So looking at their processes from kind of advertising job roles and making it accessible for um, neurodiverse consultants to recruitment, to onboarding, how they maintain employees, but also training on neurodiversity and inclusion and also individualized coaching. Got it. And Russ, your role is a job coach. Yes. And Steph, you're an IT consultant. Yes. So could you walk us through how you two work together? Yeah, we work directly together. So Russ being a job coach, oh, it's so good because he's like an extra layer of advocacy. So every time we get posted on a new project, he's there to stick up for me to say, oh, these fluorescent lights are too bright, or, hey, she needs this extra bit of software on the computer, or, hey, she didn't understand that thing you said, could you explain it again? And it's, I could say those things, Russell always gives me the option if I want to say that for myself. It's not that the job coach speaks instead of you, it's just I find it emotionally, I find it so reassuring to have someone else on my side, and it does feel like they're on your side. It's an extra layer of someone that knows how to translate. It's like having a translator <laughs> if you were in another foreign country. Like you wouldn't want to go to a foreign country without a guide, would you? So it's like if I went to Japan, it'd be really cool to have someone that could speak both Japanese and English to say, hey, look over this way, or hey, watch out, this part's really steep. This part might be difficult, so mentally prepare for Mount Fuji, whatever mountain you're going <laughs> to climb. Mm-hmm. Cool. Russ, do you have anything to add from your side? Yeah, that's that's, that's really nice to hear from Stephanie. It's, it's really interesting that the end that analogy is, is really quite fitting. And I think of the kind of translator role, what I try and kind of encourage is, is what Stephanie was saying was self-advocacy. And obviously every consultant is different and they will require a different level of support. And I think self-advocacy comes in because lots of potentially consultants when we talk about communication about or around the client, there is a sense that they're not sure how to gauge certain questions or, you know, for instance, emails, how would they come through, what, what tone to give, or, you know, is this okay to, to kind of say this? And what I guess I see my role as saying, actually, you know, what you've said there is absolutely fine. Like you don't need to worry about, you know, offending anyone or am I saying the wrong thing or, you know, is this, is this too detailed or am I giving, not giving enough detail? And I, I kind of really see my role as, as good, say, being the kind of mediator between that and saying, yeah, it's fine. It's absolutely, your communication there is absolutely fine. 
that's kind of what I see. But what we really do is kind of understand that person's experience, their opinion, not just kind of at work, but also their experience of autism generally, you know, coming from, you know, childhood and hopefully, you know, as you get to know someone, build rapport with a consultant, that relationship comes through. That really helps build that trust in the coaching consultant relationship, I think. But I think, yeah, I think as, as Stephanie alluded to, we, we do, before any consultant goes on to a project, the coach will often do training on autism and neurodiversity generally, kind of awareness training with the client. And then we'll do a specific briefing on the actual consultant themselves. So the way we do that is because, you know, sometimes the people that are on the training, they, they actually come, but they, they may not necessarily work directly with the consultant. So what we do is we, we want to have the ability to to give everyone we every client we see awareness in uh, in autism so if they never work with autism again that's fine at least they're now autism aware mm-hmm. um i think that's that's kind of in terms of a social goal what we what we really want to do is is yes first and foremost we want the people that we're training to understand stephanie or understand the other consultants but we also want them to take something away and that's you know that every one person with autism is different these are the kind of what you need to be aware of but you know how they can take that forward into their business and and, and hopefully drive that neurodiversity neurodivergence movement further um, within the company. Mm-hmm. And your job coach isn't the same as your line manager. Okay, what's that? So your line manager will be sort of your. You almost have two. You have your line manager while you're on a client project. So, for instance, at KPMG, I've got a line manager there, and then I've got a line manager Patrick here at Autocon that I'll be asking things like annual leave or career progression. Mm-hmm. And if I've got more questions about my well-being or something like, oh, I've had a bad week, I'd, t- I'd speak to Russ about that more than I would Patrick. And if I don't know how to ask Patrick something, then I could ask Russ instead. And there's things that you might want to keep confidential on one side or the other. And I found Autocon as a company to work for has been really good at respecting that. And you feel like you've got a lot more breathing room by having a line manager and a job coach separate. Mm-hmm. And I think just to add to that, I think one one thing um, Stephanie will probably agree with me that I am extremely non-technical. So I don't know anything about the kind of data analytics side. She's really, really gifted in analytics and, and data. And I, I Whilst I kind of can engage in a conversation, that's where Patrick and her will have a more of a technical discussion based on the project. But if there's anything around communication within the project, then I can kind of mediate those those conversations, if that makes sense. Yeah. So how often are you two meeting? I mean, are you working together every day or just checking in as needed? It's about once a week. We'll have a regular session once a week. And then I can also check in as needed. Mm-hmm. Got it. And I imagine, Russ, you are the job coach for a number of IT consultants. Yeah. So we, so we generally have a, around seven or eight consultants per job coach. Okay. Cool. This is really fascinating. <laughs> Steph, had you been employed before? Yes. So I've had different jobs. Straight out of university, I was employed by the NHS, which is our national health service. I did data there. And I've also been employed by the university I studied at, Cambridge for their alumni centre, doing database work, and then here at Autocon. Okay. And how would you say the company culture is at Autocon? You've got a small company feel in that if you want to talk directly to HR, there's not like 10 different HR people. 
And if you need to order a new chair or a set of headphones, it'll come like that because you know Francie, you know the name, like you know who does it. Mm. You don't have to have 10 steps of approval. Oh, this chair is over 50 pounds. We're going to need to speak to the person above you and above them and above them. There's not all this red tape, which I find really helpful. And also, yeah, because it's strange because you've got Autocon, the wider Autocon. They've got offices in in California, in Calgary, in Canada, and Germany, and I believe Australia. Yes. So there is a wider, we occasionally get emails and news from the wider company, but most of our culture is based on the London and Edinburgh offices. That's sort of who we see and know pre-COVID. How have you had to adapt your services as a result of COVID? Yeah, that's, that is a very good question. I mean, I, I only can really can speak anecdotally but yeah I guess first and foremost we're not necessarily working from home are we we're kind of being forced to work from home in time of pandemic so I guess it's important to kind of sometimes acknowledge that so so generally you know some people find it actually okay you know working from home and, and actually ironically one of the kind of the key messages in terms of reasonable adjustments that we would have made before COVID to to our clients was you know consultants having the option of working from home and actually for a lot of our consultants that is their preference why is that because you know it's a sensory environment they know they're used to and you know there are no, no necessarily you know kind of off-putting distractions they may be with support networks that they prefer there's no need to kind of commute into London which again is a massive has a massive cumulative kind of impact on sensory processing so it's not really surprising that a lot of consultants from an anecdotal perspective are finding the actual the kind of real world implications of the lockdown manageable that's notwithstanding the, the kind of the, the kind of additional impact that generally being part of a pandemic is going to cause, you know, exacerbate anxiety, you know, dips in, you know, productivity and concentration, I think are just the norm for a lot of people. So I think coaching is often about kind of trying to show that kind of that balance. And so it's actually, well, you know, everyone's in the same situation. I think, you know, everyone's, you know, to some extent is, is going through the same situation and, it's fine to have days where, you know, you don't feel as productive and you don't feel quite as, you know, it's got a, you know, concentration dips and things like that. But I think, and a lot of it's around kind of supporting subjects and manage enteric, the uncertainty that we can't control. So a lot of what we're going through at the moment is outside of our control and we just have to take kind of things a step at a time. And that's, that's mainly where I find kind of job coaching support going at the moment in terms of managing consultants kind of mental well-being in, in those in those respects really. Steph do you have something to add? Well those outside the UK who might not know we've been in complete lockdown this November which means no nails, no lashes, no pubs, no haircuts, no takeaways. Well yes takeaways. Pretty much takeaways is the only thing you can do so good for you if you're delivery but <laughs> yeah, so it's been it's been mostly negative. The one positive to come out of this pandemic, which is the only positive in my mind, it's not been worth all the all the suffering that's been going on. But the one positive there is is that companies are realizing that work from home is going to be here to stay, and if they want to stay relevant, they have to allow employees to work flexibly. Not just the employees that have children but the employees that might want to work from home for other reasons. I've read some blog posts in Japan 
where Japan has an insane working culture. You have to stay in the office. If your boss is still in the office, it doesn't matter if he came in at he or she came in at 3 p.m. If they're still in the office at 9 p.m., you stay there and then you go with the boss for drinks afterwards. Yeah, I used to live in Japan for a couple years. Oh. So I can definitely attest to that. <laughs> yeah. Whereabouts in Japan? I was living in Tokyo. Amazing. Yeah, so you know all about that then. And companies before, they were saying there's no way you can do work from home. And now they're sort of suddenly okay with it. Mm -hmm. They have to be. Yes, I think a lot of companies are realizing that. I can speak for the Global Autism Project. We've had to leave our New York office and we're all working remotely now from different corners of the world and realizing how much more we can do mm -hmm. from this virtual landscape. And it's in these situations, I think, that you're also forced to think creatively and kind of innovate and new ideas can actually come out. Yeah. So when you are working together and you're offering this kind of mental well-being coaching, Russ, do you guys set goals for Stephanie that you can kind of measure along the way and make sure that she's meeting them? As I said, I think the job coaching process, for me anyway, is, is very much directed by the consultant. So I think there have been times where, for instance, Stephanie has said, okay, this is this is something I want to focus on. Can we talk about it in our next session? Or I want to make sure that you can, can you remind me about it? And just to make sure that I, it's on my mind so it doesn't, you know, I can kind of focus on process, processing it on top of everything else I'm doing. Because we've got to remember the job coaching can be sometimes split between the actual job itself. So the work I, Stephanie was alluding to earlier, her, her work, that she's doing at a client project. But also we may talk about totally different things around, you know, outside of work, how things are going at home or in relationships or just generally how she's managing the day-to-day -day kind of life. And some of our goals may be related to that. So we kind of have to balance those two together. So I think generally, yeah, we do we do kind of set kind of flexible goals, I would say, um, on, on occasion, depending on what is brought up in, in, the, in the coaching sessions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you offer other companies who are looking for ways to be more inclusive and more diverse? I think look at the skills. They might not impress you in person. They might not make as much eye contact as you want them to. But if you really look at what they can do and their attention to detail and their perseverance and loyalty and honesty are big qualities with people on the spectrum. I think people that have gone this far in life, you know that they're hardworking. So I'd say give them a chance and see, maybe do something that's a skills-based task so it's not completely a verbal-based interview. Mm. I think that might give them time to shine. There's different opinions on that, of course. Russell, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, that's that's true. That's that's what we do at Autocon. So, you know, as you can imagine, interviews are, are basically a way, a social construction of how we now generally assess someone's competence in a job. But actually, it's a test of selling skills, which individuals with autism, for various reasons, will find harder because, again, it requires theory of mind and knowing kind of what other people want to know, how much detail to go into. But what is really important actually what you want to know in an interview is can that person to do that job so technical tests tasks task-based kind of interview processes are probably a better way to go and can you actually test someone's competence at that skill rather than their ability to talk about 
their competence or, or their abilities, I guess, is probably a better way to go. But I guess it's also about, you know, when you, as an employer, if you think about the employees you already have and finding out, are you doing enough to support them from you know, a neurodiversity perspective? So it's about kind of opening up, you know, surveys and, and questioning whether you are doing all you need, all you can do for, for individuals and making sure that you are making reasonable adjustments when necessary and encouraging people to disclose uh, at the earlier stage as possible if they have a you know, autism or neurodivergent condition um, so that you can put in place any reasonable adjustments that, that allow that person to excel or perform that role the best to the best of their ability, I think. I would like to add that people on the spectrum are generally very nice people. And that sounds super cliche, but people that have gone through crap stuff in their life generally are empathetic and they do understand struggles and they do their best to work with other people and they'll be a team player in their own way. They might not come to every drinking session or every after work party, but they'll love to support and be supportive of other people, especially other people that have gone through struggles. They'll know internally what it's like to have to fight through something and work a lot harder than everyone around you and just to kind of keep your head above the water socially. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you guys. Thank you both for your time and sharing your stories with us and your work. You know, I think the model that you guys have at Autocon is really inspiring, and I hope that other companies will look at it and get some ideas of how they can maybe implement some similar processes at their own jobs. Yeah, hopefully. I think we're getting there. And if anyone listening wants to get in touch or follow my wrestling... Yeah, how can they learn more about that? On Instagram and Twitter, I am Kiara underscore wrestler so that's k-i-a-r-a underscore you know the little dash thing and then wrestler and you can also follow me on facebook just type in kiara wrestler kiara wrestling any kind of combination of those words and you should find me kiara is my middle name got it yeah we'll put links to those in our show notes and also links to autocon's website is autocon on twitter russell yeah we're on twitter as well so autocon uk cool Thank you, Rachel, for being here and doing everything that you do. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Many autistic adults have exceptional talents in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Many also have unique cognitive skills related to logic, pattern recognition, precision, sustained concentration, and an ability to intuitively spot errors. Despite these advantages, an overwhelming number of autistic adults still find it challenging to secure or maintain a job. As we discussed with Haley Moss in Episode 18 and with Michael John Carley in Episode 21, the unemployment rate for college-educated autistic people in the U.S. is as high as 85%, according to statistics from 2016. Otacon is doing something remarkable to change that. By building on each IT consultant's strengths and pairing them with a supportive job coach, Otacon is improving its employees' professional development, confidence, and personal autonomy. The clients they work with are also benefiting from an increased understanding of autism. As a result, 
different workplaces are shifting their perceptions of how they can collaborate with a more neurodiverse team. Audicon's unique model has the potential to be applied in many different contexts, countries, and organizations. If you're an employer, I encourage you to identify opportunities to make your workplace more accessible for neurodiverse adults. How can you create an environment where differently abled employees can utilize their unique skill sets in a positive way? Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.